0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, The Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of the Week. Our special guest this week is A. B. Stoddard, editor and columnist at Real Clear Politics. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is our end of the year podcast. It is New Year's Eve, uh, this uh, the day of the day of uh, New Year's Eve. While we're recording this, and um, so I thought we'd um, have a look back at the most awful year that probably any of us can ever remember. Um, and uh, and and just review a few of the outstanding moments. But I, I'd like to begin, if we could, with a little bit of a discussion about the election, because of course, we would all be in a very, very, very different place if the election had turned out differently. And um, I'm gonna start with you, Bill Galston. It turned out to be closer than we thought, a lot closer than we thought. And I certainly will plead guilty to having predicted incorrectly, Um, that Biden would win in a landslide. Um, I believed the polls and then I used my own, um, uh, my own analysis to, to go even further. So I I was wrong about that though. He did win, but, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, as overwhelming as we had thought. I mean, the, the popular vote was, but the electoral college vote was a squeaker again, right?
1: Well, uh, it depends on what you mean by a squeaker, I guess. Uh, you know we can we can do the math two ways. Uh, he won states with exactly as many electoral votes as Donald Trump won four years earlier. Uh, I wouldn't uh, a squeaker in the electoral college is, I would say, an election in which a switch of one state would be enough to alter the results. Uh, that that wasn't that wasn't close to being the case in either 2016 or 2020. Uh, I will also say that as someone who never predicted a landslide, I've been emphasizing that a 7 million popular vote margin uh, and which works out to 4.5% of the popular vote uh, is a substantial victory by the standards of the 21st century presidential elections. So it was not a particularly close election. Uh, and as for uh, as for the results down ballot, uh, I am I am struck in retrospect by how many unanalyzed hopes drove Democrats to believe that they would make big gains. For example, in the House of Representatives, uh, if I had a lot of time, I would go through the math and the history. Uh, suffice it to say that. 2018 was a kind of optical illusion because it represented the interaction of a highly mobilized Democratic Party eager to send a message uh, to Donald to Donald Trump uh, versus a Republican Party that was not particularly energized. It was what the political scientists call an asymmetrical mobilization. Uh, and there was every reason to believe that the gap between the Republican House vote and the Democratic House vote would narrow with Trump at the top of the ticket. Uh, So I never believed that it would be a blowout for Democrats either at the presidential level or or the House level. Uh, And in retrospect, I think if the Republicans had realized how close the House elections were going to be, they probably would have poured more money in and they might very well have come away with a very narrow majority. So I could tell the story two ways, uh, and uh, but at the presidential at the presidential level, I think the people who believed that Biden would win comfortably, just looking at the basics, including the fact that Trump's job approval never got above forty six percent, were pretty were, were were pretty much not surprised by the results. I know I wasn't.
0: Maybe um, when I said it was a squeaker in the electoral college, I was referring to some analyses that I've seen, which say that um, that if forty five thousand votes in three close states had gone the other way, the electoral college would have gone the other way, which is a closer margin than Trump's in twenty sixteen. In his case, if three states had you know if seventy eight thousand people in three states had gone the other way, he wouldn't have won. So. In that sense, it seemed um, a little closer. Um, as you look back on this year, um, do you think that it was, you know, basically baked in? You know, Biden was ahead in the polls right from the very beginning, um, and uh, and it really never his lead, though. It you know, you got some some outlier polls and some bad polling in various states, but he never lost his lead. So was this baked in all year or do, or do you think things could have changed the outcome?
2: I'm um much more focused on this weaker quality of the election. I don't think it was inevitable that Biden was going to be the nominee, although it was likely and probable. Um, I don't think it was inevitable that he was going to win, although in our real clear averages, he was always ahead by the same amount. You know, um before, long before Iowa, and then, you know, up um, till the election. Um, but it remember that Biden was on a course against Bernie Sanders, uh, which is the opposite of divide and conquer, where everyone stays in the race. And they did too late to band together against Donald Trump on the Republican side in 2016. So he wins with a plurality. And if it weren't for Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg dropping out and begging everyone to join forces and support Joe Biden, we could have had a real situation um, on our hands with you know the socialist versus the sociopath and the general <laughs> election. Um, That's good. I like it. Which most people believe. Um, and Congressman Tom Ryan always tell, uh, told me this that that people would pick the sociopath. So um, huh. if I actually am looking, and I have the numbers right here um that um poor joe biden could have had 6 million vote advantage and lost the electoral college that's a very sobering figure and it's really sobering for for democrats going forward in terms of the structure that elects our presidents obviously by electoral college and not popular vote so hillary clinton can blame those 77,744 votes that gave donald trump the presidency and donald trump has sixty five thousand and nine votes to blame um, for Biden beating him in the Electoral College. So, looking at the polling is just another thing completely aside, right? I'm, I'm mm-hmm. there are reasons why we believe that the polling had been corrected since twenty sixteen, and that we should re- we should believe not only in the general results but in all the trends that were all the same. Mm-hmm. We were never. I always told Biden supporters don't get drunk on the fourteen point national lead, you you know that pops up in a CNN poll. But if you looked at, at the averages and the trends, it was so solid, and it ended up being truly a squeaker. And I think for Democrats, those House races, everything they have a lot to examine. And if like the Republican Party, they draw a post mortem and a and a, a you know and then and then they an autopsy and then they ignore it. They'll really um, eat the results of that. I, I, I think that they, you know, as looking at both parties becoming crazier and crazier, if the Democrats want to fix their what ails them, they'll they'll take a long look at the structural disadvantages they face, and then also what happened in the places where House Republicans outperformed Donald Trump and held on.
0: Um, interesting, Damon. Um, I, you know, my my um, default mode was always conservative and conservatives like to see very, very strong arguments for changing any institution or anything that's been done for a certain length of time, pretty much not anything, but many things. Right. And, um, until this year I must confess that my attitude toward people who said we really need to get rid of the electoral college was negative. I thought, well wait a second, you know, it it performs some functions and it's worked for us all these years and yeah, you had a few cases where the winner of the electoral college did not win the popular vote and that was problematic, but that really doesn't happen very much. But look, uh, first of all, the the two examples uh just since the year 2000 when that has happened, and then the projections that we are looking at more elections where that may happen in the future leads me to say maybe we should reconsider um, going around the electoral college. You don't have to amend the Constitution, by the way. You can do it through a compact of the states. And I'm just wondering what's your perspective on that, because it it is really um, it's, it's alarming uh, where we are.
3: Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I wrote many columns a couple of years ago, kind of banging the the drum about the injustice of the Electoral College. So I'm I'm sympathetic to those arguments, and I think that it's true. It's a huge problem. Nate Silver is probably, I think, his best contribution to the six months leading up to the election this year was a tweet that he sent out that i believe i shared as my selection at the end of one of our podcasts where he went through and showed the uh his his um prediction of the likelihood that uh trump could win the electoral college biden winning uh the popular vote and all the way up to what we ended up seeing of about biden up about 4.5 percent there was still a significant chance that Trump could win. And it turns out, as you noted in your your uh, what you said at the top, I mean, I use a slightly different figure because I think if it if it was about forty-five thousand votes in three states, I believe it would have been a tie of, of two sixty nine, two sixty yes, you're correct. That's right. Uh, and yeah. which is which you know would have led what's gonna happen on January sixth and Congress to look like uh child's play. That would have <laughs> right. been a total mess. Um, but, but let's change it slightly to 65,000 votes in three states and Nebraska's second congressional district,
2: mm-hmm. if
3: 65,000 votes, which again is still just about 20,000 or so votes, uh, fewer votes than Hillary Clinton lost by, um, in that case, then it would have been two seventy two sixty eight, an outright electoral college victory for Trump. While... In effect, Biden would have won by around four point five percent and about seven million votes. That is a huge problem, but the the issue is um, I know there there's talk about doing it through you know making a change through a kind of state compact. I, I guess I've become more of a skeptic that that this is something that can really be achieved. Uh, in any kind of serious way um, from where we are. I sort of think that Democrats need to spend a little less time thinking about how we can somehow get around this fact uh, of our system and trying instead to win within it, as Democrats have done, for the entirety of american history until roughly the last four years i know bush v gore gets lumped in with the problem but bush v gore in 2000 was a a much narrower issue as bill noted earlier that was a true squeaker where literally fewer than a thousand votes switching in a single state would have changed the outcome that That's something where that was such a narrow election result that there are plenty of electoral systems around the world that would have been short circuited by something that narrow. Um, Our problem is more of what we've seen in these last two uh, presidential cycles where The Democratic electoral coalition is becoming increasingly urban and and inner ring suburban, and therefore increasingly inefficient against the Republican electoral coalition. And that can be changed by Democrats making a different kind of pitch or appeal to voters. And I would urge them, I would say it's more realistic to think we can resolve the problem by changing in that respect. In other words, Basically, it's a case for more moderation and centrism on the part of Democrats, especially on cultural issues. In other words, do more to do even more than Biden did in appealing to Midwestern voters, Rust Belt voters and so forth, and keep trying to make those inroads instead. So that's where I come down.
0: Yeah, it's it's not as if they didn't get this message in the past. I mean, um, I think Rahm Emanuel was the um, chairman of the democratic campaign committee in 2006 and recruited a whole bunch of sort of moderate Democrats to run, um, in 2006. And they, and they did extremely well. Um, As
3: many did in, in 2018, when we keep hearing that story of, well, the Democrats did so great in 2018. Well, a lot of the people they recruited were precisely like that as well.
0: I know I couldn't get over how many were military veterans. I thought, are they in the right party? (laughs) But (laughs) they they were. Yeah. Um, Linda the um, the electoral college as it was initially envisioned was going to be a, a group of uh, men um, who would come together and and use their judgment to make sure that the will of the masses of the mob hadn't gone off the rails and that only men of distinction and judgment would be elected president um, it never worked that way. (laughs) Like right from the very beginning, it never worked that way. Um, well, that so. may
4: be true, Mona, but, you know, I've often joked on the on this program that you and I share a common brain, and I, I'm finding myself more and more since the election, finding some separation from you. And what's even more shocking to me <laughs> is that I am now the more conservative party. It's true. I mean, it's true. And, it, and it's really strange because you're a lifelong conservative. I came to conservatism later in life. But l- let me make a pitch for the idea uh, of the Electoral College that isn't based on whether it's easy or difficult to win, but on the notion that one of the great things about America is that we are so diverse, and I don't just mean racially and ethnically uh, diverse, but that we have different um Sort of subcultures within the United States. I mean, if you live in the Midwest, it's very different than living living in the Deep South. I'm a Westerner in my bones. I will always be a Westerner. Uh, it's very different than being somebody who comes from the coastal areas. And if you look at the map, uh, the colored map, you will see that. The blue states are very much coastal states uh, with now a little smattering. Colorado is now uh, is now much more safely uh, democratic uh, than it has been, and Arizona may be going that way. But I've always thought there was some beauty in having a check on this notion that, uh, you know, one, cultural group, uh, and in this case, cultural elites, well-educated people who work mostly in white collar jobs, professionals, uh, get to pick our national leader. And the fact that you do have to make a play for these different kinds of people with very different backgrounds. And it, I'm not even speaking so much in terms of of policy issues. I'm speaking more in terms of of culture. And that was one of the reasons why in previous um, presidential elections, there was, you know, a need to have a kind of regional balance. I mean, you know, JFK would not necessarily have picked Lyndon Johnson were it not for that sense that you want to have people from different backgrounds and appealing to different kinds of voters. So I'm not willing to give up. The Electoral College just yet, and I agree very much with uh, Damon in suggesting that Democrats really need to do a better job appealing to those Midwesterners, um, Westerners outside of you know places like Colorado, which you know it's it's Denver and and Boulder, and then the rest of Colorado. Uh, it's not the entire state, but but doing a better job in in appealing to more rural, um, exurban voters, um, Southerners, uh, people who uh, lead a different lifestyle, who don't get up every morning and, and read the New York Times and the Washington Post and turn on CNN and, and MSNBC. Uh, but I also think that in order to ever make that work, Republicans can never again do what they did in 2016. And that is pick a totally unhinged, unprincipled man without character, who, by the way, had no ideology. Uh, I think, you know, the political parties, um, they should be different and they should represent different things. And right now, I have no idea in the world what the Republican Party stands for.
0: Uh, Well, I do, but we'll get to that later. Um, Bill Galston, you wanted in on this? Uh, You know,
1: Two points for the record. Uh, First of all, 100% of Joe Biden's 7 million vote margin came from just two states, California, which he won by 5 million, and New York, which he won by 2 million. Uh, If you look at the two largest uh, Republican states, uh, they, they provide a much smaller vote margin. For Republicans, uh, so there is there is a massive voter distribution problem that, that Democrats have, and if they wanted to solve their electoral uh, college problem, they would quite literally decimate California in the Roman sense. That is, that they would <laughs> they would select yeah. one tenth of the population, and which a little bit more than say three million people, and disperse. Say 300,000 to 10 carefully selected states, and then we'd be having a very different conversation. Uh, the, but, uh, less jocularly, uh, there is a perfectly constitutional way of mitigating many of these problems. I believe it would be constitu- constitutional for the Congress of the United States to mandate that each state will award, uh, all but two of its electoral votes based on the, democ- the presidential outcome in congressional districts. Uh, uh, and there would be all sorts of positive civic consequences uh, to distributing electoral college votes in that matter manner. I haven't worked out exactly what impact this would have had on recent presidential elections, but from the standpoint of exposing the entire country to the election rather than having the election confined to 10 or 12 states, I think it would be transformative.
0: All right. Let us turn now to um, another huge story from 2020. Um, we um, On uh, May 25th, George Floyd was killed by police officers, and um, we also learned of the death of Breonna Taylor and uh, Rayshard Brooks, there were others. And it provoked a huge outpouring of, uh, of fury and, and upset. And a, one had the sense at the time that we had reached a, a moment in our society where we wanted to reexamine issues of race and policing and issues of discrimination and so forth. Obviously, these are eternal matters for this country but um but it felt like there had there had really been a a a sort of national reckoning of some kind and um i'm just wondering you know i'm going to start with you ab do you do you get the sense that that feeling has dissipated um or that you know some of the things that we talked about at the time like reforming certain police practices no knock raids, uh, which was implicated in the Breonna Taylor tragedy, and qualified immunity, and other things. Um, do do you think the moment has passed? Is that uh, and and what are the consequences if if it's forgotten?
2: Yeah, I think it's unfortunately, um, as you describe, that 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 the momentum from all of these galvanized Americans all across the country, black and white, young and old, everywhere, um, coming out, and you could see the shift in the polls in support for the Black Lives Matter movement, and just general polling about policing, and discrimination in policing, and use of excessive force and everything. Those That polling changed. Um, it went, it went you know, up um, suddenly as a result of uh, George Floyd's murder, and um, the the resulting protests and then it faded uh, and by the election had sort of gone back down to a little bit above like status quo um, and that for Republicans who were really hammering Joe Biden about you know the need to condemn the violence which Joe Biden did in his understated way over and over again but he probably didn't do in dramatic advertisements and. You know there was there was a lot of they 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 used that kind of messaging against riding very effectively, i think um in in uh, certain places that they targeted and and the sad thing is that police reform really should be bipartisan, and there's no question um that for the those of us who you know everyone who backs the blue wants there to be police accountability and knows that bad cops destroy the reputation of forces with good cops and, and good leadership. And so um, I think that Biden was straddling this very difficult rail in the Democratic Party, telling them, you know, look, I'm not gonna see supporting defund the police. I'm going to condemn violence. He tried to find this place in the middle, but Donald Trump really if he wasn't Donald Trump and wasn't such a, a train wreck and had and was politically shrewd, you know, really could have stood up with Tim Scott, the senator who was sort of leading the the effort on the Republican side and every day and said, why aren't the Democrats working with us on this? Um, and instead, he just did self-destructive stuff like Lafayette Square. And, you know, it was a disaster. But I do think that the police need to restore social trust. And, and this is this is really a sort of a gimme area where People from both sides can come together and try to look at areas where um, you could help good cops um, root out bad cops and there would be an increase in in accountability that would ease all this tension, lead obviously to less um, discrimination, um, battery and death. Uh, but uh, really start to bring about some healing um, in in the political system um, and in Black America. So I'm frustrated by the fact that it was just, it it came about in such a political moment. But interesting, back to the conversation about the squeaker in the election, I mean, Donald Trump in the middle of absolutely destroying the country with a once in a century health emergency um, that he completely intentionally denied, dismissed, and refused to deal with, could have actually turned his numbers around with this very issue that people sort of just generically think helped Biden if he had just, you know, tried to lead on it. Um, And and so in the end, we're left with nothing, no reform, and people kind of reverting back um, after these protests that, you know, John Lewis thought were really gonna lead to change before he died. So I look back at it as one of the sort of the great disappointments of the year, and I hope that if that, if that, if some kind of sanity from the center ever lives again um, in our governance, that that this would be an issue at the top of the list that both parties would prioritize. Um,
0: Damon, you could even make the case that um, that whereas the initial uh, energy and the initial passion was um, for racial justice and for reform, uh, that that really did flip on its head when the violence got out of hand in certain places when trump so bungled the response um but uh, he, he bungled the response but it didn't matter the fact you could argue that um biden saying you know having having messaged reasonably well that he was you know he didn't excuse rioting was okay and not harmed by it but you could argue that lower down on the uh uh, uh, you know, uh, on the list, the uh, Democratic members who were running um, may have been badly hurt by the defund the police message, which certainly um, certainly was out
3: there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was, it was in some ways a, a really sort of tragic missed opportunity, although it's also true, sadly, that... Uh, our politics, being as polarized and dysfunctional as it is, all, this often happens. You see it with uh, when there's a mass shooting. There's suddenly all this groundswell of support for more gun regulations. Then it kind of it it kind of crests, and then within six months it's gone again. And then we await the next big. Uh, tragedy to happen and then it happens again and then it goes away and, and very little actually changes. And that's a kind of broader problem, I think, with our politics right now is that the government is not particularly uh, responsive to public opinion about a lot of these things. And that's a that's a problem. And it feeds the kind of burn it all down mentality that you get on both extremes. Um, but on the issue of crime in particular, I mean, I'm going to really go out on a limb here. I will begin by saying that uh, I absolutely think it would be great and think we need to reform the police in all kinds of ways to make them more responsive uh, to communities that they serve uh, and less beholden to, uh, you know, what their unions demand and protecting uh, bad apples uh, and so forth. I also think as terrible as these headline grabbing cases have been this year with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, The fact is that there are, for example, 16 million black men in the United States, and in 2019, 11 unarmed black men were killed by cops in America. Now, that's 11 too many. Obviously, there were also 23 unarmed white men killed, and that's 23 too many of those. Obviously, if you look at the percentage in the population of black versus white, uh, there are disproportionate numbers of blacks killed. So these are problems and they do have to be addressed. However, um, you know, 11 uh, in a country as large as the United States is is less of a kind of um, crisis issue than you would think. And if you go back and look at these numbers back in the past, it used to be much worse so i think there's a way in which we're living at a time partly because of social media where we're all falling victim to the fallacy of composition where you find one example or a handful of examples of something and they get blown up as exemplary of the whole and so you know 20 years ago when uh, an unarmed black man was you know killed by a gun or a cop kneeling on his throat as happened tragically with, uh, with George Floyd, uh, you know, there wouldn't be a video of it. You'd kind of hear about it. It might not make national news beyond the local area. Now, it instantly, there's a video, it's broadcast the entire country, and even the whole world sees it in about five minutes, and it becomes the the aha moment, the, the, the moment where everyone says, see, that's the way it is overall. That's the exemplary case. And in some cases, it isn't true. And the last point I would make is that um, another reason why I think uh, things have sort of crested and and now ebbed in the reform drive that we saw six months ago in the country is that the the big crime story of the year has ended up becoming this alarming spike in homicides throughout the country. just yesterday, the Washington Post reported that the U.S. has experienced the largest single one-year increase in homicides since the country started keeping such records in the 20th century. So that means more than in 1968, more than throughout the early 70s when crime was going off the charts. And, you know, that, that's a, 29, a 20.9% increase in killings nationwide. Uh, and that's only through the first nine months of the year. Um, That's a huge problem. And this is getting reported on local news. So people are aware of it in their own communities. They see it on the news when they watch it. And um, I think that is one major reason why the kind of the the drive for addressing uh, racial injustices has has sort of uh, faded so quickly because it's been replaced by uh, a different problem that you know is killing a lot of blacks far more than the 11 who died last year you're you're having i mean a lot of these a lot of the deaths uh you know from this violence is is black americans living in cities and so uh you know the very people who you would want to be helping by reforming the police are actually now being gunned down in violence by their fellow citizens, so that's that's a very different kind of problem and uh, and a, a very significant one.
0: So, two two points to respond to real uh, quickly. One is you know you talk about the fallacy of composition, and that really describes the internet the way we the way we um, process information these days. It's fallacy of composition all the way down. You know something goes viral and and people then lose their capacity to um, put it in perspective and, and look at statistics and say, yes, but how common is this really? And so forth, which is the only way to make sane policy. Um, another thought, a, a, a related thought, though, regarding this spike in crime, I saw that, of course, too. And the first thing that I thought was, it's going to be a really devilish problem to figure out what went on in 2020 when you're a criminologist going back and trying to figure this out, right? Was it, did it, did it have something to do with the, with the um, uh, police pulling back after all of the protests? Did it have something to do with the pandemic? Did it have something to do with the crazy atmosphere in the country in general and a, and a, and a very fraught election? I mean, there are just so many things that went badly in 2020 it's going to be awfully hard to compare it to other years and try to tease out what's going on right
3: oh absolutely it's uh, all of the above i would think right right
4: well, yeah go ahead yeah, i was just going to jump in here on this i i mean i think you're right there has been this you know huge one year <clears throat> increase in in homicides But let's remember that we were at a near 50-year low in many of these high-crime areas uh, prior to this. So when you're starting at a a lower point, it takes many fewer uh, increased murders to to see that kind of blip. Uh, I do think, though, Mona, that um, one of the—I think that was very um, unnerving to most Americans to see cities— burning to see widespread looting across the country. I mean, in places we were not used to seeing them. Uh, I've mentioned a couple of times on the show, Denver, where I grew up. Um, It's not a place you normally associate with riots. It's not like Los Angeles or New York City or Detroit. Um, And yet there was rioting there and there was destruction. And I think that unsettles people. And I think it redounded to the benefit um, of Trump. Uh, unfortunately, I do think, and certainly that, to down ballot Republicans, certainly to down ballot Republicans, right. Uh, but I do think that Biden has a chance uh, in this it, uh, upcoming uh, year uh, to try to get some movement on criminal reform because I do believe we have a policing problem in America. You know, yes, it's uh, it's. You know, not that many people killed by the police in any given year, but it's a whole heck of a lot more people killed in the United States of America than in any other uh, major country in the world, industrialized country in the world. Uh, and I do believe that our police forces, particularly after 9-11, became very militarized. Uh, I mean, it's you know really astonishing when you saw the riding this summer to see these tanks moving down the street. And it wasn't the National Guard bringing in armored uh, vehicles. It was police forces who, yeah. who have that kind of weaponry. Uh, and I think that's a problem. Um, and I don't think, given the fact that we've had relatively low crime rates uh, in recent years, that it's justified uh, by need. I mean, you know, why do our cities have to look like they've been taken over, that there's, you know, uh, uh, some kind of uh, martial law that's taking place uh, with tanks and people looking like soldiers in the street. So I do hope that Biden is able to take this on. And I do hope that when he does deal with the issues of racial injustice, that he doesn't make the mistake that Democrats so often do which is to swing the pendulum too far uh, in the direction of trying to create special programs based on race, trying to make race become a factor in hiring and school decisions. I mean, one of the you know most interesting things, and again, we've talked about it on the program this year, um, in the election was that California, arguably the most liberal state in um, in the country, I don't think actually there's any argument about that, it is the most liberal state. And yet, um, voters in that state rejected a move that would have put racial preferences for college educations and government hiring and government contracting uh, back on the books. So, Um, it's going to be, uh, I I think Biden's own personal instincts on this issue are very good, but whether he is moved too much by trying to appeal uh, to the left in his party is going to be the real test.
0: Um, Bill, one of the things that has been characteristic of our era is that there is so much unwillingness on the part of each side to show even a modicum of good faith about the other side. Right. And one of the things that I hoped would happen, this was before the rioting, but that when we first had these huge demonstrations on behalf of Floyd and, uh, on behalf of blacks, black Americans in general, uh, and you had certain little, you know, they were symbolic, but they weren't unimportant things like, um, the NASCAR company banned the stars and bars and, uh, and the the state of Mississippi decided to change its state flag to eliminate any vestige of the uh, Confederate battle flag, and so forth. And you know, it it could have been a moment uh, to say, you know, people sometimes are insensitive or they don't realize how things sound. But when it's pointed out to them, they can they they can let the better angels of their nature uh, thrive or, or or bloom. And and um, it feels, one of the reasons I wanted to discuss this is that it feels as if everything just sort of disintegrated. All of that hope, all of that opportunity that was part of what happened in the aftermath of these awful tragedies has dissipated. And instead we're, we're back to, uh, you know, you wanna defund the police and, and, uh, and I wanna, you know, uh, uh, be cruel to, uh, to black people.
1: I'll confess, Mona, I'm a little bit more hopeful okay. than that. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful not only because in the midst of a highly conflictual year, there was actual agreement across party lines and legislation in the area of sentencing reform uh, with the president's support. But I'm also hopeful because I know for a fact that there are groups in both the Senate and the House, bipartisan groups, that are quietly working behind the scenes to try to uh, negotiate some agreement between the package of criminal justice reforms that Senator Tim Scott, Republican, African American from South Carolina, put together, uh, negotiate some agreement between that package and a you know and a more aggressive package of reforms on the Democratic side. Uh, I don't subscribe to the argument that all of the energy has gone out of this. Certainly it has receded somewhat. But I think thoughtful legislators on both sides of the aisle understand that there's a real problem here and that it needs to be addressed. Uh, a second reason for hope is that, Uh, President Biden will not drop this issue. He won't let it disappear off the agenda. He can't. uh, And even if he could, he doesn't want to. So there will be sustained presidential attention. And I think that once he learns more about the, the folks in the House and the Senate that are really continuing to work on this problem, he... He will come to believe that a negotiated solution is not only possible, but, but beneficial. Uh, a, final, a final point, I think that to some extent we lead ourselves astray when we focus exclusively on killings by police. The deeper problem, I think, and one that has really driven a wedge between minority communities, particularly African-Americans and the rest of the country has to do with the day in, day out policing practices, stop and frisk, uh, stopping stopping cars for minor infractions or because they appear to be in the quote unquote wrong neighborhood. the, the resentments that have built up are much more focused, I believe, on these day to day experiences of unequal treatment by the police than by the episodic but highly publicized police killings. Uh, there, I, Lindsey Graham, uh, had a kind of an aha moment in a Senate hearing just last year when Tim Scott told him that he personally had been stopped by the Capitol Hill police six times in the past 18 months and was unable to persuade them that he was a US Senator trying to go about his business like any other Senator. Remember that think,
0: think I think Bill, he said he'd been stopped uh, in his own neighborhood, driving his car six times, and he had also been stopped by the Capitol Hill police. But I don't think it was six times by the Capitol police. I could be wrong about that, but
1: well, you're really wrong about such things, Mona. So <laughs> th- thank thank you for the factual correction. But the point stands.
4: Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly.
1: you now yeah. we're talking about unequal policing that doesn't take the form of shooting people recklessly and without justification. Yeah. To take takes the form of daily provocations that drive home the belief in minority communities that they are the objects of suspicion by the police. And the police see their their job much more as subduing these communities than serving them. And that has to end.
0: Yeah. Yeah. uh, Thank you for that. Um, Okay. So um, let us now turn to uh, a segment that where we're just going to list some things from the past year. Um, It has been probably the most eventful year ever. So, you know, I'll just give a couple of examples at the very beginning of January of last year of uh, 2020, we were talking about the assassination of Qasem Soleimani Australia had huge fires. Uh, In February, we had the Iowa caucus app that malfunctioned. Remember that? Um, This podcast spent a good bit of time on the accusations by Tara Reid. I I could go on, but let's- uh, Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. So let's start though, uh, I've asked you all to submit what you think is the craziest moment of 2020.
3: Damon, what about you? Well, there's a lot of competition yes. <laughs> that. Um, but i I guess um i i will I will avoid uh, pointing to one of the couple dozen uh examples from uh, Donald Trump that I could have chosen mm-hmm. uh, for this and instead uh highlight something uh that actually came out in talking to my son about this. He reminded me of the evening of March 11th, which I believe was a Thursday, which was the week, as we all might remember, when we went from, ah, this COVID thing's not that big of a deal to, oh, my gosh, we're shutting down the world. Mm. Um, And it was on that night that Trump gave a speech in which he said that he was shutting down travel from Europe. The NBA shut down the rest of its season tom hanks it was announced was uh sick with COVID 19 i believe he was in australia at the time uh but that that night uh really was uh the one where it it hit i think pretty much all of us that we were heading into a a a truly alarming uh situation in the country and the world so that's the one i wanted to highlight as the craziest moment of the year
2: Mm.
0: Uh Bill, I remember we had recorded our podcast. I don't know if it was that week or possibly the week before, but I remember when we were still seeing one another in person and uh and you said based on people that you knew who had this thing that you thought there was there was much more to it than uh than they were saying. But anyway, what's yours? Your craziest moment?
1: Oh, I have a runaway winner. Okay. Uh Rudy Giuliani at four seasons total landscaping.
0: (laughs) That's Linda, you'll have to come up with another one.
1: I've yeah. never seen anything. Remember when Rudy started melting?
0: Yes, his his <laughs> hair color running down the side of the That was just that was priceless, I have to say. And um and the fact that the Four Seasons it was supposed to be at the Four Seasons Hotel but it was at the Four Seasons Landscaping Company near a porn shop and a Crematorium, I think.
1: I so, checked that point earlier, and you're absolutely right. <laughs> there we
0: are. Okay, those are your. That's the the lawyer to the president of the United States, ladies
2: and gentlemen. <laughs> A B. My um, craziest moment was Lafayette Square because um, it it just happened to be the one that I physically responded to. I mean, I can remember exactly what it felt like. I was outside. I was working on, um, a column and, uh, there was, I was listening to, to, I, I knew this was happening. And so I sort of put the Sirius XM radio on CNN in the background and Wolf Blitzer started to sound so disturbed that I went into the, into the room inside the house to watch, to watch it on TV. And watching the whole thing unfold, if you just think about all the different things that were going on, um, they had televised Bill Barr walking through Lafayette Square to go into the White House, uh, the picture of them all leaving, um, knowing what happened afterwards uh, with Chairman Milley, just seeing the sounds that were happening um, in the street, um, and then that Bible, uh, you know, the, the, the just standing there with a bunch of white men and Kaylee McEnany and and Ivanka in front of that beautiful church. Um, it was it, Mark Meadows looked like he wanted to do anything he could to escape. Esper was there. It was the most bizarre lineup and just you know image.
0: And Um, Millie in his fatigues, which he apologized for later.
2: Right. It was just it was just everything about that day, I think, was uh, it was just so dark, but it was so dramatic. Um, And I think it was just the craziest.
0: Yeah. Um, Linda, since um, since Bill's hook yours, I'll give you a pass on this one and we can move on. Or if you have something else, go for it. We move on
4: to most inspiring moment because we'll we'll get there.
0: I just want to add my crazy because um, it's quick. Um, I think uh, a moment that will sort of encapsulate just how crazy this administration could be was when Donald Trump retweeted the uh, comments of a Dr. Stella Emanuel. He chose her because she was promoting hydroxychloroquine. Um, But it turns out that she also uh, believes that ovarian cysts are caused by demon sperm and lizard people and other things. And uh, the president, when he was asked about her, said, well, he he just thought she was very impressive and her voice needed to be heard.
4: That's (laughs) right. Okay. So she was also, I think, one of his African Americans, and literally African Americans. So. <laughs> was uh, she actually from Africa? I think she was. Oh, actually. okay. Um, ma- ma- right. Maybe from the Caribbean. I okay,
0: Linda. Uh, you, since you've you've
4: demanded it, go for the most okay, inspiring most moment. inspiring moment. Well, I was very inspired when someone finally stood up to Donald Trump and called him out, an elected official. And of course, it was not a United States senator. It certainly wasn't the vice president. It was a mid-level state official in the state of Georgia, Gabriel Sterling, who went on a rampage against Donald Trump, calling him out for inspiring violence. And his words were It's all gone too far. And I found that very inspiring because I think if something like that had happened early and often in the Trump era, we would have had a very different last four years. I really think the cowardice, particularly within the Republican Party, to call out uh, the baseness of this man Uh, the craziness of this man, and the truly dreadful, cruel, and awful things he did uh, really harmed the United States and made us a worse nation in 2020. Um, Linda, I'm
0: sorry to rain on your very uh, inspiring moment, but um, while I agree this fellow deserves some credit, I have to say that... um, that there were a number of Republicans who suddenly found their voices after Donald Trump had been defeated. And I would (laughs) include Rick Santorum and the New York Post editorial board and the Wall Street Journal editorial board and many others who um, suddenly were disgusted and dismayed by this, these attacks on our on our values and our culture. But uh, anyway, okay, Damon, what's your inspiring moment? Uh,
3: Well, I mean, I I almost feel bad to to do this because I assumed that several others in the podcast would pick this and since you've come to me as before anyone else has said it, I'm going to steal everyone's thunder. It was Mitt Romney exactly. uh, voting to convict <laughs> Trump. Uh, yep. I mean... I, we had some discussion before the podcast about uh, some other examples of Republicans who have uh, sort of, you know, uh, tacitly supported Trump and then have turned on him. And whether this is cowardice or uh, kind of late breaking honor, uh, and we can maybe talk about that uh, when other people name things. But uh, the Romney vote uh, was really something not only in the context of this year we're so and, and this administration were so many prominent Republican office holders have just sort of gone along with the circus out of uh, out of fear of Trump and his voters. But in the context of the narrower context of the impeachment itself, the fact is there is really no precedent in American history for a party to boot out its own president (laughs) in an impeachment. Um, so that was always going to be a very long shot. So it, you know, in that context as well, Romney having the guts to stand up and say, you know what, what he did is wrong, and I'm going to vote my conscience, and it's this, and I don't care what you say about me as a result, was, was a, a truly a noble moment in American politics at a time when there are not very many
0: Um, Thank you, Damon. Since that was mine, I'm going to um, just add that um, it is the only time that a senator has ever voted to convict a president of his own party in an impeachment trial. So uh, so there's also that aspect of it. Um, A.B. I
2: want to just that's not my choice, but I just want to second that that that's in that speech where he was near tears. Uh, it was so incredibly moving because he was not only devoted to the Constitution and the system that he serves and believes he's a public servant, but he also, you could tell, was really living his faith and that his faith would not permit him um, to, to be deceptive uh, in pursuit of power. Uh, it was just an amazing moment. Um, and I'm okay. very glad it was part of this year. My, uh, um, my it, i found inspiration. Um, it's really been interesting this year. The, uh, uh, the only place is on Twitter. Sometimes you'll catch it on cable news. I'm inspired by the many moments um, that I have read about and uh, about these frontline workers that, that in the healthcare, in, in hospital workers, nurses. Mm. They. Have done the most unbelievable things in the pandemic. They have moved away from their families, sometimes with young kids, to hotspots. Gone on airplanes, gone and lived in hotels and bunked up for weeks and months at a time to help uh, places that are surging um, and are at break. You know, hospitals that are a breaking point. They have held the hands of strangers so they don't die alone. They've staved pat They've prayed over them. They've stayed past their shifts overnight. So, that people they knew were about to die would not die alone. It has been, it's just been unbelievable. And they are the best of us. And um, I'm really obsessed with the coronavirus um, and what it's shown about our society and the fact that a significant portion of the country still just does not care that these hospitals are at breaking point, um, that we are. That that we're crushing our system with what what happened at Thanksgiving, what's happening at Christmas, um, is it, just it, it just it breaks my heart. But these people have really inspired me, um, and they just never stop giving.
0: Thank you, Ab. That's a fantastic choice. I'll just add one quick point, which is my brother's a doctor, and um, he stressed during this whole process that it was the nurses above all who deserve. Our gratitude, he said, you know, we doctors, we go in, we see the patient for a couple minutes and, you know, or, you know, sometimes longer, but frequently it's a quick visit. Yeah. You're, when when you are only exposed to the virus for a brief moment, you're not as at risk. Whereas the nurses are, you know, they're there all the time and uh, they have, you know, their own families to worry about and themselves. And, and it's just been so inspiring and courageous and, and wonderful. All right. Um. Bill, did you, um, did you offer an inspiration? No, I don't think you did yet.
1: You're right, I haven't. And I'm, I'm gonna mention something that nobody else has, and this may reflect the fact that I'm the son of a scientist, but I was truly inspired when the Pfizer test results were made public. Mm. I said to myself, my God, in the midst of all of this history, The United States, rather in the midst of all this misery, the United States has just made history. From a standing start, we have a functioning vaccine in nine months. Uh, It was really a triumph for scientists working as teams across the country and frequently across national boundaries as well to achieve what in any other time would be called a miracle and one that will save millions of lives around the world. So uh, I I found myself inspired as the son of a scientist by what I knew the backstory was, how many laboratories were, were running 24 uh, seven, how many people had left their families for extended periods to go to work in, in teams, in nodules of scientists who were trying to move the process forward just as quickly as possible. If you look at the estimates of how long it would take uh, before uh, this process of vaccine development was underway, you would, you would see things like t- two years was very optimistic, You saw estimates of three, four, five. Some vaccines have taken a decade. Others have never been developed. There are diseases that people have been working on for a very long time for which there's no effective vaccine. So uh, I just, I I was stunned into silence by that announcement.
0: Agreed, all right. Um, Let us now move on to our picks for the 2020 MVP, and I am going to take the privilege of going first because I'm I'm betting somebody had this in mind also. <laughs> Damon, too bad um, <clears throat> if this was your pick. Oh, uh, I'm going to choose I'm <laughs> going to choose James Clyburn uh, because I think the most important thing that happened in 2020 is that we ended the presidency of Donald Trump, and without James Clyburn throwing his support in the, before the South Carolina primary to Joe Biden and thereby um, goosing his uh, chances of winning that primary, which he went on to do in, in decisive fashion, and then winning the uh, nomination. If it had not been for that, it is not at all clear that Biden would have been the nominee. And if Biden had not been the nominee, it is not at all clear that Trump would not have been reelected. And so I think the MVP has to go to James Clyburn.
3: Uh, Damon. Excellent choice, but that was not who I was going to pick. I'm doing just a different order of basically a similar point, which is how can it not be Joe Biden? Okay, uh, Joe Biden, I, I really do believe, given what we saw with the results, because again, I do think it was it was remarkably close. I do think he's pretty much the only Democrat who could have won this year, mm-hmm. given the available options. Um, I wouldn't have that necessarily a few months before the election but seeing how it worked out where the votes were the different groups uh, who were mobilized on the different sides seeing how well trump did in in gaining seven million or so additional votes over four years ago i think biden uh, ran a really tight ship a strong campaign he and his campaign were Ungodable by either the woke left or the multitude of attacks coming from the right about his son, about other things that had nothing to do with reality, like calling him some kind of socialist radical, uh, Trojan horse for the left. It was just—it was sort of nonsense coming from both directions. And at no time did he really ever get knocked off of his stride he never took the bait and and just ran a solid campaign in a really crazy year where it couldn't be a normal campaign and you know in politics what matters is if you win and he did win and uh at least uh you know we can we can say <laughs> that therefore uh, the democrats really did choose the the best guy this year so uh kudos to to joe biden
0: Agreed.
4: Linda? Well, I picked Anthony Fauci. Uh, What would we have done without him? He was the only person who we could sort of rely on to stand up at the podium and give us uh, the straight picture during all of those many briefings in the early days. He's the one who explains to us uh, medical terms and the progress uh, of the vaccine and tells us how it works and gives us the bad news uh, when he needs to, which is that Americans are not doing what they should be doing in terms of, of uh, staying within their own family circles. They're only uh, getting out and spending too much time with each other and therefore the uh, virus is uh, going wild. So I think Anthony Fauci, he's my hero, my most valuable player of this year. Excellent
1: um bill well i'm going to pick someone much more obscure uh a federal district judge from the middle district of pennsylvania by the name of matthew brand uh a a longtime republican official uh he uh, got a lot of training in his years as a member of the federalist society Uh, a longtime member of the the NRA, who wrote, in my opinion, the decision that turned the tide on the Trump campaign and supporters' legal challenges to the 2020 election. Uh, Brand's 37-page opinion was thorough, scathing, and totally compelling. And I noticed that a lot of people who'd been silent before that decision came out, broke their silence and started to say in a swelling chorus, these legal challenges are worse than frivolous. They have no merit. Uh, They're undermining confidence in the system. Cease and desist. So he is, I think, an unsung hero in the story of why we didn't end up with a even worse legitimacy crisis in the wake of the 2020 election than we did.
0: Yeah, uh, I agree. And I would just add um, Stefanos Bibas is another one of those yes, lifelong indeed. conservatives who, who also wrote a fantastic opinion. He's on the, I think, Third Circuit Court of Appeals and he wrote a, an opinion saying, you know, the 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 voters pick the uh, the winner in our system, not the courts and not not candidates who simply assert without evidence that they've been robbed or that they don't like the outcome. So that was, and he was a Trump appointee. It should be added. Um, okay, Ab, do we get you on uh, on the most inspiring? Yes, you you named the uh, healthcare workers. Oh no, MVP, MVP.
2: Yeah, so we didn't Brian, get you on this. Linda got to go first because she and I both picked Anthony Fauci. But to say something different um, uh, about him, um, sort of in addition to everything, I echo everything she says. Um, just think of what this man went through with Donald Trump this year, and he <laughs> yes. never lost his cool. Uh, just kind of like what Damon was saying about Biden. You know, he, they really have the ability to withstand a lot. And someone asked him on cable a week ago, you know, you've been through a lot. You've just turned 80. You're having holidays with your daughters for the first time. And, you know, they're 30 years of being alive and it's stressful. And you're the face of this and you've gotten death threats and all this stuff. And he said, you just suck it up. You know, you mm-hmm. you, you just keep, you keep on working. It's too important. And I think he's led with his example. He's yep. been able to put up with this total, totally unhinged beast. Um, and it would have been within his right to say, you know, on 60 minutes one night, this is nuts but he never did um and it's it's kind of an amazing thing to behold and I, I i'm also just really thankful for everything else he's done for us
0: yeah it was kind of a um a nice reminder when we desperately needed one that there were sane sober people around who were making important decisions and helping to navigate us all through this this uh, difficult period. Right, and
2: Dr. Burks ended up not being one of them. Yeah.
0: No, that's true. She, yeah. she, uh, oh, well. All right, um, let's, uh, I, we were gonna discuss the most disturbing moment of the year, but you know, in the sense of let's be hopeful, why don't we move on to our final thoughts, our, our something that we want to highlight from uh, the past
4: week or even further back. And Linda, let's start with you. Well, I'm going to go from something today. Apparently, the Census Bureau has notified Congress that it is not going to be able to uh, release the numbers for the 2020 census. And this, of course, is important because it is used in uh, reapportioning uh, the various districts, uh, political reapportionment, and Donald Trump, um, had tried uh, all through his uh, term in office to make sure that the Census Bureau, when it came time to counting people, did not count people who were not uh, legally present in the United States, despite the clear wording of the Constitution, which says that you shall count all whole persons. So um, this is a this is good news. Um, it, it means that uh, there is not going to be a reapportionment. Uh, that will take seats away from states like uh, California and New York and hand them uh, over to uh, places, like, I guess, like Montana and Wyoming and other places maybe that have a higher proportion of uh, citizens in them. Uh, and so it looks like these numbers are not going to be forthcoming till after Joe Biden is in the White House and we can uh, put aside this uh, further threat to the Constitution. Mm, interesting, AB.
2: Um, well, I, as I mentioned before, I'm really um, obsessed with the coronavirus and what happened this year in terms of what I believe is the largest, uh, worst failure of government in our history to protect its citizens um, in a in a in a mission that it was responsible and accountable um, for doing and. Um, unlike um, Donald Trump's messaging was always, you know, to shove it off on the states, but it was the federal government's responsibility to mitigate the threat of a pandemic, um, like the threat of a dirty bomb. And as I said before, he refused to. Um, So I think it's just been uh, really important for people to, there's so much other noise that goes on. It was an election year. We were all dealing individually with our struggles during the pandemic. There was an economic wipeout. There were so many things that people sort of tended to just become numb to um, not only the death total, which is now at almost 4,000 a day, is heading to 7,000 a day, but at, at, at what this greatest nation on earth did not do for its citizens not stand up a national testing regimen so we could self-screen, we should be months into having home tests by now, all the things that we've lost because of what Trump refused to do. I, so I sort of want people, not only after impeachment and everything else to reread the constitution, but I desperately want them to be students of what the government was supposed to do and did not do. So I'm gonna highlight Lawrence Wright's massive piece, uh, The Plague Gear," and The New Yorker this week, which I've begun online, is very compelling but i intend to read in person and as a new yorker and a and a fan as a new yorker myself and a fan of the new yorker magazine and a subscriber i i have to tell you it's been daunting to not be able to find one in this local uh vicinity for um all the days i've been trying but um, I will get my hands on it and I will I will finish it, but I think it's a great look, uh, again, um, in addition to all the other great reporting from the Atlantic and other places, um, telling us just what we have at our hands in this government, that the Trump uh, group refused uh, to utilize, how they politicized the FDA and the CDC, the work we have ahead, um, because there will be other pandemics. And um, I think that people need to realize um, there's a lot to be learned about this. Both about government and about um, about you know what we our expectation of government is and should be as we enter into a Biden administration.
0: All right, let's go next to
3: Damon. My selection is uh, from a philosopher at the University of South Carolina named Jennifer Frey, spelled F-R-E-Y. Um, she has an essay in the Newish Christian magazine titled "Fair Forward." Uh, The essay is titled, Taking Humanity Seriously, and it's a really thoughtful critique of a very well-attended class at Yale uh, on happiness that's taught by a cognitive behavioral psychologist, and something like 25% of undergrads take this class, and she really, uh, in a very polite way, dismantles what is taught in this class and offers uh, an alternative account of human beings based on classical and christian traditions of philosophy and also drawing on the 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 writings of essayist and novelist uh, marilyn robinson it's a really useful reminder of how much beauty truth and wisdom is waiting for us in the great books of the past and in our noisy uh, moment in history that's something uh, we can never be remind, be reminded of too often
0: Thank you for that. I love I love things like that because uh, there is a tendency toward presentism that we all suffer from. And it's good to be reminded that those who came before us knew knew a thing or two um, and had deep wells of wisdom.
1: Bill Galston. Well, I wanted to observe, I can assure you in a non-malicious spirit, uh, that the first serious debate of the 2024 Republican presidential nomination contest has already broken out. A few hours after Senator Josh Hawley announced that he would join members of the House of Representatives in challenging the results on uh, January 6th. Uh, another young Senator, Ben Sass, also a Republican, uh, posted a 2200 word mini essay on his Facebook account, accusing unnamed people of being quote, institutional arsonists by uh, by continuing the fight, the feudal fight to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Uh, and he, he said very bluntly uh, that, some people uh, were trying to move to the head of the populist pack uh, by, by playing this card and that it was destructive and irresponsible. Uh, and I don't think it will be long before there is a response, response from Senator Hawley and those who support what he's doing. And uh, this will be a very interesting debate between institutionalists and populists within the Republican Party.
0: Thanks, Bill. Um, I saw that post um, by Senator Sass. It was excellent. He went through sort of chapter and verse about why these uh, these claims of election fraud are utterly spurious and bad faith. Um, and so that was that was good. Unfortunately, um, there are estimates that somewhere north of one hundred Republican members of the House may sign on to. Uh, This effort to uh, challenge the Electoral College count, um, which is a really bad omen for democracy. Um, And of course, Hawley is utterly cynical, knows exactly what he's doing. And it ties in with my sort of final thought here, which I'm afraid isn't very cheerful, but that it is. There are two things that happened that I wanted to just cite as evidence for where the the party has descended to. This past week, we had the uh, conservative pollster Rasmussen tweeting out a quote from Joseph Stalin, of all people. Um, It's not actually a true quote, but then so few quotes are. But in any event, it was something along the lines of, it's not who casts the votes that counts, it's who counts the votes. And it was a message to uh, Senator, uh, to Vice President Pence that uh, he could somehow Manipulate things uh, in favor of Trump uh, on January 6th, which is, of course, absurd and unpatriotic and all of that. But it's really, I just couldn't resist the irony that this is, this is what conservatives think is, is, uh, is conservatism now, to quote Joseph Stalin. Um, and not quite as bad, but along the same lines, I was struck by Senator Ted Cruz um, coming out against a bill which was passed by a voice vote in the house um, to uh, welcome refugees from Hong Kong who are fleeing because of political persecution, because the lights are going out in Hong Kong. The communist regime of mainland China is squelching that island's liberties. And here is Ted Cruz saying, nope, he doesn't think we should open our doors to these people. They might be spies and... uh, uh, he gave some other absurd reason, but you know, here you are with Ted Cruz, who claims to be Mister Conservative, who's the son of a of a refugee himself from Castro's Cuba, um, who is saying that uh, that that we have to close our doors to those fleeing uh, communism uh, of the worst kind. So. Um, it's uh, it's not a pretty picture about what has become of the Republican Party. Uh, I hope that Ben Sass is the voice of the future, but I'm skeptical. Well, on that note, I want to thank one and all, A.B., thank you so much. A.B. had to jump off, but we want to thank her for joining us. She is uh, always fascinating and well-informed, and I want to wish everyone on this podcast and all of our listeners a very healthy and happy new year. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week, as every week.